there's a famous albert eiler album Mm -hmm. called music is the healing force of the universe and for me you know music it goes beyond words it goes beyond politics religion everything else uh to me music is you know to to speak almost metaphysically you know uh, the world is made was created out of vibration in some way that was how the world is created. And uh, music is the art of vibration. So to me, understanding the vibration that creates sound and the vibration that connects people, that's what we're celebrating when we, when we participate in music. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I always thought that the more that I would pursue music, that the more I would learn and research and, and study and perform, that it would become less mysterious and I would become more, uh, you know, uh, kind of less impressed. But in fact, the opposite has happened. The longer I've spent with music, the more impressed I am and the more mysterious it is. And I am more excited today than I was, you know, 30 years ago about the process of music and the nature of sound and the power of music and how it connects people mm-hmm. and I, I just I feel so it's a hard life you know I won't I won't joke you know it's a difficult life to be a musician um, certainly in New York and in most places in the world but it's such a privilege to be able to dedicate myself to an art form that can touch people so deeply and in such personal ways and I think if there are groups of people who have suffered or who have been uh, discriminated against around the world, I think music has always been a source of power mm. and resistance and strength and community. And I think that's actually what I hear when I listen to music, whether it's Indian music or Arabic music or African music or jazz or Jewish klezmer music. The, there's a sound of... Uh, transcendence and uh, dedication to survival and celebration of the magic of life no matter what the circumstances and uh, I think we all tend to you know uh, you know when do we sing or, or we sing when we're doing the dishes when we're working in the in the yard when we're doing hard work we often sing or do something to make it better to make it more enjoyable when we're in a religious service we use it to to get closer to, to a, a creative force. And uh, I just feel really uh, so enamored of that and so in love with the, the power of it. And I don't know what I would do without it. So. So I'd like to know a little bit more about you and how you, you find your way to becoming a musician. Well, you know, some stories are difficult to tell. Mm-hmm. I come from a, a Jewish background. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, I, I really consider 
music is my religion. I'm not a religious person in the organized sense of religion. I get it. Um, mm -hmm. My family has some background. There's some music in my family in the from from we have, you know, because so many we lost so many people. It's hard to trace the, the whole story because we lost so many people. Mm -hmm. So the doors are closed. Uh, but my father's side of the family was in Eastern Europe in, in Lithuania. And there was a town called Vilnius, Vilnius, and it's pronounced different ways, but it, it was part of Russia, part of Poland, part of Lithuania at different times. But it was, there was a Jewish cultural center there. It was a real center in Europe with a lot of the arts. And my grandmother was a violinist in the conservatory. So right before World War II and the Nazis, right before that, she left with her boyfriend, who was a little more cultured guy. He had left the little town of Vilnius and gone to Paris to study, which was unusual for kind of uh, working class Jewish people. He was, he was considered kind of an intellectual. So when he came back and they realized, oh, there's not a lot of economic chances here in our country, let's go to Russia. Uh, to to uh, to try to survive to get more opportunity, and I I don't know if they were ever married or not, and she either was pregnant or became pregnant shortly after. But this guy, they went to a museum in Russia, and he was studied enough. He was looking at paintings, and apparently he said something disparaging about. Uh, social realism, the, the kind of communist take on things mm -hmm. in, in the art. And somebody overheard this and took him to, they were thrown in a labor camp in Siberia. So they were thrown into a labor camp in Siberia. He was shot. He was killed by the Russians. My mother, my grandmother was still pregnant. So had my father without a father and living in a labor camp in Siberia my father was born in 1938, so they were in a labor camp from 38 to 45 during World War II. One day she received a letter that all seven of her brothers and sisters and her parents were killed by the Nazis back in Lithuania. All seven of her brothers and sisters. So, hmm. it's so hard to talk about, but the, the point is that Strangely, in life, sometimes even people in a labor camp in Siberia turn out to be the lucky people <laughs> because they were lucky that they left. And even though my father spent his first, you know, seven years in captivity like this, he went on when they came, they moved to, to the United States when the war was over in like 48, 49, something like this. And he became a successful scientist in cancer research in the United States. So I came from a family very early that understood suffering, but also transcendence, not to focus on being a victim, but personal responsibility to survive, to do something beautiful with your life. He played guitar as a child. He played uh, acoustic guitar when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And we used to sing all the black spirituals and Jewish spirituals mm -hmm. and Bob Dylan songs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, he, you know, I was born in the 60s. So there was a lot of these old songs of, of protest and, and uh, social movements, social justice movements. And so very early, 
I didn't know anything about music, but I was very touched by music in the sense of the feeling of stories and tragedy and broken love stories and uh, slavery and liberation. And I just heard, I, I guess I, I felt very powerfully the connection to, I don't want to say tragedy, but the hard parts of life. I've always felt very sympathetic and empathetic to, to, to people going through things, you know, and that we all suffer and it doesn't take a lot to really feel for each other, to understand those, those feelings. And I think the fact that my father was an immigrant and I was very short, I was very asthmatic as a child, I was in the hospital all the time. I, so I, I think I grew up with a sense of connecting with the otherness. Um, when I was very young, when I was about, uh, wow, very young, five or six years old, we were living in Washington, D.C. when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And even though I didn't understand anything because I was too young, but my best friend was a, a black child who also lived in the same kind of housing development where we lived. And we were just kids, you know, but you felt this kind of there was fires going on and protests and crazy things going on around us. And you felt this sense of uh, engagement and struggle that needed to go on to, to kind of lift people up. And I think those feelings, even though it wasn't something specific or conscious, I think those feelings always shaped me as an artist and turned me towards the power of music to bring people together. And mm. more specifically, I would say since then, from all my traveling, from you know being around the world and playing in different countries, what I relate to, I guess, musically is the blues and that there is the sound of the blues mm. in every culture. And sometimes it's a crying, it's a, the blues is an amazing art form because it has, it's it's like, it's the pain of life, it's the sound of the pain in life, but it's the sound of, yeah, but I'm going to transcend, I'm going to, I will not be brought down by this, whether I was uh, betrayed by my, by my lover or betrayed by a person or a society, I am going to get through this. I'm going to, you know, the music itself is like the act of, acceptance processing and then and then kind of uh perseverance you know transforming that suffering into something powerful and so when i play when i'm on stage in all honesty i feel almost like someone coming down from mount sinai you know coming down with with a message that i want to share with people something and it's not tied to specific words or laws or or philosophy it's just the idea of kind of open-mindedness trust compassion um belief that most things bring us together the differences are so small relatively speaking you know we've studied you know in science the dna apparently the difference between us and chimpanzees is about 0.2% of DNA. You know, we are so little difference from the animal kingdom. And so the difference between people is even smaller. 
and the difference between cultures and societies and languages is very small. And so for me, when I play, I'm tapping into something like that says, I relate to you, whatever you've been through, I can relate on some level. And I hope you can relate to what I've been through. And when I play, I try to create maybe a safe place to seduce the audience and, and give them a safe universe where I can then maybe be a little more provocative and challenge artistically some of their preconceptions mm. that, you know, so I'm, I'm not doing commercial dance music. But I might, like Bedouin Dream, I'm so happy you mentioned that song because it's my favorite song on the album. And, and it touches a feeling that I have. I have a joke about that song, about Bedouin Dream. Right. I have a joke that I also call it, I call it camels and mushrooms. Because for me, the image is a little bit uh, psychedelic going yes. through the desert on a, on a camel kind of thing. I hear you. And the idea is this sense of wonder and a sense of uh, how vast the world is. And, uh, and you know, I've never had a life. I've been, I haven't been homeless. I never lived on a tent. I never, in a tent, I don't live in the desert. But there's, there's a feeling I have, Bedouin dream. It's like the dream of what it's like to just live this life out in the desert like this. And, uh, so I create that, but then within the song, I try to pre pre present more dissonance and more urban tension, you know, something relates more to my own life in New York. And so within these, these structures that I create, the idea is to, to, I don't want to scare the audience. You know, a lot of what I consider avant-garde musicians, uh, they, they might hit the audience very hard to make mm -hmm. a point. I tend to try to make people feel comfortable and safe first and then address some more difficult things. I do the same thing with my wife. You know, when we have to talk, <laughs> you know, when we need to have a hard conversation, you don't want to, to attack. You want to make someone comfortable and then say, but, you know, we have some important stuff to talk about, you know. Wow. So I hope that addresses everything including for. in the root of uh, allegiance of your work you know having seen so much suffering because what i hear in in your horn also made me try to figure out which place of the horn the sound comes from that keeps on saying but all will be all right that's what i got all the time when i listened to it like you kept on saying it will be whatever it is it will be okay as i left you know to come and sit in here i was listening to some of the tracks and i was thinking what a that's why i was asking what are you what's your allegiance which makes which is so resonant in your music and thank you for explaining it so beautifully i'd like you to tell me about you know just uh, being with a band of musicians that you seem to trust in 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 translating the the music that you write oh wow that's a great question it's something i'm very happy to to share uh so when i came to new york i i, I have a funny trajectory in general tying together kind of my personal story with my relationships is that i always feel like a very lucky person that i've been through life kind of on this charmed path, but I've also had, I was, I started my career in Paris in the early nineties 
And when I moved from Paris to New York, it was because there was a fire in Paris that almost killed me in, in my apartment. I almost got killed in my apartment. And uh, and I decided, okay, it's time to, to, to make a move. And then when I got to New York, I was doing pretty well in my first year, but then I got hit by a car, a police car in New York while I was on my bicycle and it tore my mouth up. And I was very afraid that I would never play music again. And so psychologically for a few months, I was very, very down. But then luckily I, I had some surgeries and I was able to play again. And one of the first people I met was uh, Chad Taylor, this drummer, and Eric Rivas, this bass player. And uh, the thing that was interesting was Chad in those days, <clears throat> Chad had come from Chicago and Chad had a background in classical guitar and he was playing what I would call, we were playing fairly what I would call straight ahead jazz in those days. And, but I was playing a lot of small gigs around New York, little cafes. And there were a lot of great places to play in the nineties, um, in the late nineties, um, when I got here. And, uh, so Chad and I played a lot of trio gigs with different bass players and Eric, it was great. I went to see an incredible musician, uh, Billy Harper, tenor saxophone player, mm -hmm. playing with Newman Taylor Baker at Sweet Basil's in New York. And there was a bass player I had never seen before <clears throat> named Eric Rivas. He was playing bass. And on the break, when I went to the restroom and I came out, Eric came up and he said to me, um, hey, man, I saw you playing at this tiny little cafe. I love your sound. I love to work with you. And uh, and I thought, um, but aren't you the guy who plays with uh, Brantford Marsalis and Betty Carter and all these people? Like, you know, I was kind of amazed he wanted to work with me. And he said, he said, yeah, but you have this, you know, you have something. And I said, well, you know, it'd be my pleasure. And so we started playing with. So I was doing a lot of different trio gigs with Chad and different bass players and with Eric and with diff different drummers. But it really wasn't until. I was asked to do a jazz festival, Montreal Jazz Festival, I think in around 2003, that I took Eric and Chad together and we went and we played a festival in Montreal and it went very well and I just enjoyed it so much. And so from then on, we tried to play as often as possible as a trio. Mm. And they brought they each have such distinct personalities in on their instruments and they each work with such interesting diverse groups of people that what has been amazing is how our relationship has changed because so that was 2003 so now 20 years later they have both i mean in all honesty it's hard to work with them because they're so busy and they're so in demand and they work so much with people who work all the time. Mm -hmm. And very often rhythm section players like drums and bass tend to work more than somebody, a saxophone player who's a leader, who, you know, I only get the jobs usually that I kind of get myself or somebody asks me to do. Bass players and drummers get a lot more consistent work because of the type of job. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, we get all the attention, of course, being in front. <laughs> so uh, all the love. No, um, so, uh, but in any case, so it was interesting how the relationship developed because 
We didn't get to develop that much playing together because they're so busy. But when we had a chance, we'd play together and then we'd do some albums together. And then their own playing was developing because uh, uh, they were playing with so many interesting musicians themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, Brentford Marsalis and Rob Mazurik and, and uh, you know, every every type of person, Nicole Mitchell and, and uh, uh, Peter Bratzman and... Uh, you know, everybody, Orrin Evans and, and uh, Chris Davis and uh, Mark Rebo and Henry Grimes. And um, and so then, meanwhile, I had met Mark Rebo actually more through the activism world, because Mark is very, very, he's like a, he's like a, you know, Mark is an amazing guy, and he, I don't want to speak for him because he has such a deep, long history, but he he has aligned himself with the labor forces of the world, and he's worked very hard to defend musicians' rights and work uh, situations. And so I met Mark without even playing together. We were both, he asked me to help protesting a club that wasn't paying musicians well. And that's how I met him. And we started trying to, to get musicians to stand up for themselves and to defend their own rights and things like this. And he's still on the forefront of that, even now fighting for rights against artificial intelligence, against Spotify, against uh, people that do not pay us correctly. Um, and he's he sacrifices a lot to do this. And he uses his name and his power in the music world to, to really draw attention to these issues. Um, hmm. And musically, what happened was I played with him and someone else's group a number of times. And uh, and it wasn't really that great. He, he was coming more from a rock thing kind of energy. And I don't really like that energy. I'm, I'm really coming out of... <clears throat> you know rhythm and blues and funk and african music and world music is my thing i'm not a big rock and roll person but guitar players understandably they love a lot of rock and roll because the way saxophone gets used in jazz they get used in rock and roll so <clears throat> but we didn't share that much overlap in the music world but i was trying to open up my world a little bit i always i'm i I have always compartmentalized. I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a control freak, you know, and I'm I I compartmentalize a lot of things, and I think, oh, this is my electric band, and this is my acoustic band, and this band can only have electric bass, and this band can have uh, acoustic bass, uh, but no electric piano, um, you know, like I was keeping everything separate, and um, and then I realized, you know what, I should try. The trio things that I've been doing with Chad and Eric, I should try adding a guitar player and see what it sounds like to bring that material instead of separating my compositions that I write for more electric groups to do uh, this material with both acoustic and electric and try to bring it together. So I started playing with a number of great guitar players, trying out different people. And, and it was fun. And we started doing gigs and playing around the city. And one day I, I knew this club in Brooklyn that Mark sometimes plays at. And I wrote to Mark and I said, hey, um, you know, we haven't played together for a while. Would you like to play with me on this gig? He said, you know, I really can't. I have a big gig coming up in New York and I have an exclusive contract. And, you know, I'm Mark Rebo. I can't play some little show in Brooklyn. Uh, 
you know, because uh, I'll ruin the, the, the contract for this other thing. He said, but I would love to record with you sometime. And I, and I said, really? You'd like to record with me? And he, he, he said, yeah, sure. Just let me know. And uh, so I was planning to do an album, Testament, the, the album before Jubilee. A beautiful and album, I must say. I enjoyed Sorry. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. And that album was a very big deal for me. And uh, and it was supposed to be trio originally. And then I decided when Mark offered, I said, oh, I'll ask him if he wants to do it. Mm -hmm. So Mark. So we did, you know, New York style, maybe one little rehearsal. And then we went in the studio and uh, Mark just sounded so good on my music in the oh, studio man. and we we had this thing that was so strange now mark is another kind of funky jewish guy you know right. in in new york city um who you know worked with everybody loves albert eiler loves cuban music loves haitian music has a lot of world music influences like me but he has more of a punk energy and a punk mentality than i do as a person um but he was so professional and so generous and so soulful. I call his, his uh, when people ask me, so what is it about Mark's playing that you like? And I always say, for me, um, Mark is punk spiritual. You know, that's what I hear in Mark's sound. He's punk spiritual. That's oh, the sound that I get from him. Right. It's kind of this confrontational, radical energy, but with a heartfelt, spiritual soulful side to what he's doing mm -hmm. um and uh and so after we did that album then we got a bunch of offers but then the pandemic came and we didn't get a chance to do so much um and then finally we 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 got a chance to go and play and do some things and it was great and so whenever all three guys are available we play but i've also been consistently also trying because it's new york Luckily, we have so many world-class musicians that I've I've found other substitute guitar players, bass players, drummers who are great musicians who play my music well. And so now when Eric or Chad or Mark is busy, I can still go on the road or play a local concert. And I've taught my music to some other people who are also very good at the music. Um, but in all honesty, Mark just, he has some weird... <laughs> we have something that just oh, works beautiful. as far as sound. Like some of the reviews I read were very beautiful because they said, you know, Mark has done so much incredible work, but some of the reviews have said that some of their favorite work of Mark's is on my two albums. And I feel very, very flattered to hear that because Mark is, is you know, from John Lurie to, to Tom Waits to, to everything else. He's just worked with all these great musicians and... Uh, it's just amazing what he brings to the music. It's just beautiful hearing you talk about this music, and um, you know, and and everybody who is who matters really is on your on your on your on your on your radar, or should I say, in your world. I, in particular, as I wrap up, I just want to mention that to find you in the same name, you know, the same space with the the last poets, or David Murray, or Archie Shep or even Greg Tate actually tells me about you, the world of activism, 
and just your relationship with it. It would be wonderful to hear your your description of what a jazz artist is about. You know, when you started, you spoke about how a, stru- a hard struggle it is to be a musician. And I relate very well because I work a lot in the genre and I realize that it's a choice to be a jazz musician. Literally, that you live for the choice that you made and you get the joy in being with the music, you know. Um, what's the whole secret to Avram and uh, what can we learn? What, what would you like to share with people that are navigating this same world that you are in at this time, which has got its own peculiarities? You know, I told you that, that Abdullah Ibrahim had been someone important to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the quotes that I heard from him very early mm. was be a product of time, not the times. And I felt that very deeply from early in my life that I was dedicated to something that is not tied specifically to the moment that we're living in. That I feel that what I want to do is go as deeply as I can inside myself to find something that I think will probably be universal since I'm a human, that if I go deeply, I'll touch something that is universal, that touches everybody. But I am not somebody who tries to pay attention to everything that's going on around me. In fact, to be honest, my wife makes fun of me because I don't, you know, I don't know a Taylor Swift song. I don't know, I don't know, uh, I don't know a lot of pop culture. I don't pay attention to advertisements. I don't know products. I don't know, I don't, there's so many things that I'm not interested in that just go by like mosquitoes. And, and, you know, that, that I have nothing to do with, I basically just stay focused on the things that touch me and the things that move me. And it could be, you know, I went to a Picasso exhibition last week that I just, I couldn't believe again, each time I see it, I think, oh, I've seen so much Picasso. It's, it's nothing anymore. It won't. But then I go and I'm amazed again. I'm just, oh my God, you know, this guy. And there were pictures of his studio and African masks in his studio that he, you know, how much research he had done and all the statues and masks and different things he researched. And there's, uh, you know, there's oceans and beaches and trees and birds and, and uh, the sounds of different churches. And I live across the street from a Nigerian mosque uh, right right here. Uh, this Nigerian mosque that is directly across the street from me. And uh, every Sunday, Friday, they're coming out in their the colorful clothes and the, the, the you know, to, 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 to worship and things. And uh, so I'm mostly just moved by things that touch me that are very analog, that are very organic. I am not very interested in, in you know, electricity even, you know, I'm just, I like candles, you know, I like fire, I like wind, I like water, I like elements, you know, I like things that are very, just, I like elemental things. I just trust that those are, that the path forward always has to be respectful of all those things, because if we don't integrate with everything around us, then what are we doing? You know, we're just isolating ourselves. So my music, I think is just, you know, now, I, I am overly intellectual sometimes, and I study a lot of philosophy and psychology and, and theology, and, and I read a lot and things, and so I can get very stuck in my head sometimes. And uh, 
I come from an academic background and, and I was pre-med, I was going to be a doctor, all these kind of things. So, so for me, music is my path away from that. My music is the thing that, that I, I, I study and I learn and I pay attention. But then when I go to music, it's, it's meant to be a place uh, before words. It's meant to be a place more pure to, to something, you know, like a cry, like a, like a sing, like a song, like a chant. Mm. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I listened to a lot of different music. But then once I got very deeply into jazz, uh, um, I really was only listening to jazz and jazz type music. I stopped listening to a lot of other things, you mm. know, um, even though, you know, like Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and Fire, there were certain bands that that were real uh, big, uh, you know, that I loved. Um, I was a freak for Stevie Wonder. Um, but uh but anyway, so at some point I found this album, uh, Abdullah Ibrahim Zimbabwe was the name of the album with Carlos Ward and uh, Esiet Okun Esiet on bass. And uh, I think it was maybe Billy Kilson on drums. I don't remember. But uh, in any case, I loved this album and I ended up at a, a concert. I was, I, uh, I was home in Seattle. And the truth is that, as I said, I had been an, a pretty academic kid. And so I was always very good in school and I was used to doing very, very well. And then music, even though I did well, it was still very hard for me. And I just thought, wow, this is really humbling to to be very good is hard, you know? And, and I was practicing so much and, you know, and getting into a kind of, you know, in those days, there was a lot of... Uh, kind of substance abuse and things going on in Boston in the late 80s. And I was getting into some stupid stuff and really bad, unhealthy lifestyle. And But I was practicing eight hours a day until my lips were bleeding and I was just obsessed and I was playing all the time. And then finally, I was so I got so sick, I ended up in the hospital and I just thought, oh, I'm going to quit music. It's killing me. Music is killing me. I'm not going to do this. I'm getting into some bad life choices and all this stuff. And I went home to Seattle to visit my parents and kind of clean up and get my shit together, so to speak, and be more of an adult and responsible. And I thought, I've got to get rid of music, you know. Uh, you know, I was, whatever, 25 or something. I thought, I can't, you know, do this. It's It's killing me, and I'm not talented enough. So, but I went to a concert... And Abdullah Ibrahim was playing in Seattle, and uh, my friend and, and Essiet was playing bass. And we ended up meeting and hanging out for a few days, and he would play solo for me in his hotel room on the bass. And we became very good friends, and he basically convinced me to keep doing music, and that there's nothing like the power of music, and that I should not quit and that I should just keep trying and keep going and dedicate myself and the road will open, you know, the the, the bushes will clear as, as I go, you know, and uh, it will always be a fight. But of course, he's a bass player. It's easy to say when you're a bass player, because like I said, they get all the work, right. you know. Right. And so, but anyway, so then I ended up, this is what's funny, it ties into you in South Africa, because then I ended up with my best friend, this South African guitar player from Cape Town, he, uh, we went to, 
to to Europe together, busking, playing on the street. We played on the street in Amsterdam, and then in uh, in uh, Barcelona, and uh, for a few months. And suddenly, and then he had to go back to South Africa because of his visa. But I kept playing, and suddenly I started getting work. So I transitioned. This is like 1988, 89. You know, I had just finished school and everything, and I started to get real jobs. And I got a job opening with a, you know, not great singer, but we were opening at a jazz festival in Mallorca for Dollar Brand for Abdullah Ibrahim, <laughs> and we were opening for him. And I couldn't believe it. And they hired me to run the jam session after the festival, wow. after hours. Wow! So, so I played our show. It was kind of embarrassing because it was kind of weird, kind of French jazz, almost like Edith Piaf or something, not really jazzy. And then Abdul Ibrahim Akaya played, and they were great. Willie Williams on saxophone and great band. Then I went to do the jam session, hoping that some of those guys would come. From Abdul Ibrahim, and a couple of the guys did come do the jam session, but Abdullah never came. And finally, they closed, and it's you know two in the morning, and they're closing the lights, and the janitors, you know, mopping the floors, and I'm having another beer or something, you know. And suddenly the door opens, and in comes Abdul Ibrahim, yeah. and it's two in the morning, and nobody is there, and I just say, oh my God. Can we play a song together? And and he said, "Sure, young man. What would you like to play?" And so I said, "You know, Duke Ellington, uh, come Sunday." And uh, and wow, I'm getting chills all over my body <laughs> right now. Um, so so this is 1989 or something. Yeah, 1989, uh, winter 89. So I played in a dark, closed club with only the janitor and the bartender there. Uh, with with Abdul Ibrahim, we played this song, uh, "Come Sunday Together," and uh, it was ah, uh, it was just you know. And for him, I was just some little white boy. Like, what are you doing? What do you want? Why are you bugging me? But he was, you know, because there was no one. He's not always, I think, so hospitable to everybody. I've heard stories. He can be a little tough, um, um, and. Uh, but there, when no one was around, he did something that, uh, for me, uh, you know, I'll, I see stars. You know. If you missed it live, catch the broadcast on Kaya nine five nine dot co dot za.